This is Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. The Hip Hop Caucus Hurricane Ida Relief Fund is raising funds to directly benefit family and individuals impacted by Hurricane Ida and who are in need of urgent assistance throughout the Gulf Coast. Every dollar raised will go directly to families and people as cash for things they most need right now, whether it be food, gas, lodging, medicine, or other emergency expenses. Hip Hop Caucus will be matching the first $10,000 donated. Please donate immediately. Go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Again, go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Now let's get ready for the coolest show. Well, I, I am always excited to be in company with this dear brother, Congressman Hank Johnson. Congressman, how are you doing today? I'm doing uh, great, uh, Reverend Yearwood. It's so great to see you. It's been such a long time. I hope you've been doing well. I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm doing I'm doing well. You know, last time I looked up on the screen, you know, I, I'm used to, you know, being an activist, you know, creating some street heat. I looked up, I was sitting somewhere and relaxing and looked up on there and they was, they was hauling you out of, out of, out of Congress. And I said, well, that's, I, you know, I had to put the fist up <laughs> first and foremost, but then, but, 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 uh, <laughs> tell, tell the folks what was going on with that. Well, I tell you, uh, that was, uh, uh, exercised by some black men. Mm. Uh, uh, there was, um, I, I'm, I'm forgetting all of the brothers' names who were involved, but uh, co-founder of uh, Black Votes Matter mm-hmm. or Black Voters Matter, uh, Chris Albright, I believe, was that name. Yeah, that's a good brother. Him and him, him and Latasha over there at Black uh, Black Voters Matter. They, they mm-hmm. And also Rashad Robinson. Yeah, you got some good folk. Color change, okay. And a number of other folks were out there, including. Uh, Brothers Mawali Davis and uh, Dr. Francis Johnson. I, I looked up to see them, and uh, we all went to jail together that day. And we, you know, it was a group of black men who came together, and we uh, rallied outside of the um, United States Supreme Court, uh, which has uh, gutted Section 2 and now, excuse me, gutted Section 4 of the Voting mm-hmm. Rights Act and then came back this year uh, with a notorious decision gutting Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So they have actually legislated from the bench and in in, a, in fits of judicial activism actually changed the law to suit their right wing agenda. Wow. And uh, so we rallied outside to uh, to protest uh, this action by the Supreme Court. 
and also actions by state legislatures, which have been given the go ahead. They got the go ahead from uh, the Supreme Court when it struck down the preclearance provisions, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act back in 2013 uh, in the Shelby versus Holder decision. And since then, states have been uh, enacting uh, voter suppression laws with impunity. And then once uh, Donald Trump lost that election uh, and the insurrectionists came to Congress and uh, tried to overthrow the government on January 6th, uh, since then, in response to the big lie, that's what propelled those folks to come to the House on January 6th. Uh, but in response to that, these state legislatures have upped the game and been imposing even greater restrictions on the right to vote, greater impediments mm. on people's ability to vote. And uh, so their aim is to really take away the right of uh, black folks and people of color to cast their votes. And if we allow this to continue, that's what it will do. And so the, we feel the stranglehold, uh, uh, we feel that the, the hand of, uh, uh, of the, uh, the oppressor on the neck, on our necks, we feel that. Mm. And uh, we feel the grip tightening. And so our response uh, that day, those black males in response to what black females had done a week earlier, uh, was to put themselves at risk. They put themselves at risk. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, who chairs the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, she was arrested. That following week, uh, the black males responded and 10 of us were arrested. And I was proud to be among uh, that group of uh, males. It's nothing like bonding inside of a jail cell. Yeah, I know that bond. I know that too well. When you, when you do a act, a action, and uh, and then they 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 come get you and and it's it's tight in the back of those little little paddy wagon trucks. I don't know if y'all were. It, it really is. You know what I you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've been Yo, in come on. I've been there. Come on now, Cosmo. I've been I've been in a few paddy wagons. Yeah, make understand <laughs> what what they did to Freddie Gray. And, mm, uh, oh, I know. Listen, it's actually I'm. Ha it's funny you say that because it's actually no. It's actually I tell folks I've always been arrested with a group like that, right? And so we've been stuffed in it together but when you're you can see if you were in there by yourself yeah how how you could be thrown around even when you're in there with the group you're still getting tossed around your hands behind your back it's still yeah. a very mm -hmm. uncomfortable feeling yeah it really is and um you know although i know that uh, we were treated much better than perhaps you've been treated and others uh you know because i was there mm -hmm. and uh, it was the capitol hill police department and so we we really, you know, I could see how things could turn south and get real rough. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it didn't happen that way with us. But still, the um, action that we took uh, was uh, something that uh, hopefully inspired others to uh, understand that it's time to get up out of your comfort zone. And to uh, it's time to take it back to the streets, uh, Reverend Yearwood. Yeah. Do what folks thought we didn't have to do anymore, which is to get out here and protest. That's the way to go. We can't uh, defeat 
the forces against us through uh, arms or violence. Uh, violence does not work. It's non-profit. Uh, it's non-violent uh, protest uh, that get people's attention, and it's a sustained effort coming in wave after wave after wave. Each wave getting stronger and stronger, and that way you're able to defeat these processes that are trying to take away democracy, not just for uh, black and brown folk, but for all people in this country. I mean, if if we don't have the right to vote, uh, there is no democracy in this country. That's right. That's right. Well, I I can speak for a lot of folk and say thank you. And for all those black men and black women who've been this, ooh, black women who've been carrying it. Um, And, you know, I can tell you that many folks saw that. And they, I want they appreciate what you, what you and others did. And I can tell you now, I learned something too. You know, I have been, you know, you know, uh, when I was protesting against the uh, the war in Iraq in the halls of Congress, I didn't have no Congressman Hank Johnson with me. I got whooped up there. You know, don't please whoop. They whooped on me, man. So I know next time I'm, I'm, I'm gonna come. Down, down to your office and come get you. So I'll get that whooping. <laughs> uh, you know, or or you change, uh, you put on your uh, your MAGA uniform. And uh, that, that that may be uh, it because I because I had on a church collar and everything. I had a collar. On. I thought the collar would have been enough. I uh, figured when they see this black man with a collar, on, they probably gonna cut me some slack. But man, they was in there. They leaped on me, and I was like, man, I need to go find me Hank Johnson next time. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll be with you next time. There you go. Well, Just I'm. <laughs> So for those that don't know you yet, who is Congressman Hank Johnson and what do you want your legacy to be? Well, Hank Johnson is a uh, is a family man from uh, Latonia, Georgia. Uh, He uh, graduated law school and he didn't want to work for anybody else. He simply wanted to set up his own law practice and represent the people. And uh, that's exactly what he did. And for 27 years, uh, he represented people in the courts of Georgia, uh, mostly practicing criminal defense law. And so he knows what the criminal justice process is all about. And uh, he did some civil work as well. But his wife joined him in the practice of law. They practiced for 26 of those 27 years together. And, uh, And she helped him get to Congress 15 years ago. It was just she, he, and a couple of uh, uh, personal friends who ran a campaign and uh, without raising very much money, we were able to use the service that, that he gave and that she gave to the people, all of the people that we knew. And those people came out and voted for us and uh, we were able to go to Congress and since I have been in Congress, uh, Reverend. I have endeavored to represent the very people that I represented uh, as a lawyer. Those are the children and the parents and neighbors who live in the community that I serve in. And so uh, those are the people who I serve, not the corporations, not the wealthy, the influential, but it's just the regular common people uh, who don't have anyone who speaks for them. I'm one of them. And so I speak for them. 
And I've had the privilege and the honor of representing uh, the people of Georgia's fourth congressional district for 15 years. And every vote that I have taken, it's been one that I thought was best for the community that I serve and for the greater good uh, indeed, because the people of my community are no different than the people of every other community, white, black, rich, poor, um, we're all in this uh, in this boat together, and uh, this ship you could call the the, the world, uh, which is floating in the sea of the universe with all with a unfathomably infinite uh, uh, um, distance. Uh, I mean, the eternity and the profoundness of life itself and where it exists, not just here on this planet, but in this universe. The universe is so vast is what I'm saying. And so my, I wanna be known as a person who recognized the interdependence and the interrelatedness of people and also of uh, people and their environment and a, a person who recognized the fact that it's what we do that causes our environment to be what it is. And so therefore we are the ones who have responsibility for making things good for our children and their children. We, we each have to advance the cause of, of uh, justice and equality and, um, and respect for mother nature. Um, and uh, we, we have to instill those qualities in our children and we have to live those qualities ourselves. We have to live that way ourselves to try to make this world a better place as opposed to take everything we can while we are living in this life and, and enjoy and, and uh, you know, uh, prosper off of everything, step on everybody's back. And then when we die, there is nothing to say for our efforts other than you made it, uh, you advanced uh, a couple of steps economically and uh, that was it. But look at all the damage that you left or look at all of the things that you could have done for others, but you did not do because you were too busy trying to satisfy your own basic urges and instincts. And, um, and so I wanna be the kind of person who uh, folks look, look at as someone who fought for justice, equality, and fairness, and uh, humbleness, and, and graciousness, and uh, love, and uh, those kinds of ideals. Uh, th those are the things that, that motivate me to to, to work and do what I do. Amen to that. You know, we have heard that you are a practicing Buddhist. And so as you do your work in Congress and in the body of a black man, can you tell us what that means and why it matters that you hold this spiritual tradition? Well, I mean, it's, it's really, Reverend, no different than, uh, than uh, a black man who is a Christian or who is a... a uh, a Muslim, you know, our faith, you don't, you don't just go to church on Sunday and that's it. You know, uh, your life is 
your work. Some folk do now. Some folk do that now. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But really, our work and our family, everything off work, everything that we do is a matter of faith, mm. is an extension of our faith. So faith permeates uh, all of our actions, in other words, is what I'm trying to say. And so, you know, um, being a Buddhist, that was uh, that worldview. Uh, appealed to me, and um, and I have continued to uh, to practice Nichiren Buddhism for the last um, gosh, it's been forty two, forty three years, wow. something like that. Actually, it's been forty five years, mm. forty five years, and um, so um, I'm I'm very happy uh, as a uh, practitioner of uh, Nichiren Buddhism, and I'm also quite um, happy with others who um, practice their religion and revel in it to the same extent that I do mine. And um, and I think we are all, uh, like I said, in this, uh, on this ship together. And um, it, it, we come in many shapes, sizes, and uh, dispositions and uh, yearnings and understandings. And, um, you know, we, we have to all uh, work together and so, and we have to live together and we, and we should learn to uh, not just tolerate, but actually love each other and respect each other for who we are. And uh, so I, I strive to live that kind of uh, a life. And, um, that that's what that's what each of our faiths, I think, uh, inspire in us to do is to bring out that highest nature um, that exists and to um, to live in accordance therewith. Well, Congressman, I just want to tell you, man. You know, I absolutely, as long as I've known you, I love your spirit. I love your energy. I mean, it's just something. And, you know, something about that. And that's just a, a, a blessing that you have that that, that comes across. Now, uh, you know, I just want to say this, though, because, you know, I'm also, you know, I'm a reverend. So, you know, I know you got some folks. We don't call no names here. There's some folks even in your Georgia caucus. <laughs> well, I know they may test your they may test your faith. <laughs> you may want to, you may, and I don't know, <laughs> you hear some things on the other side of the aisle you're like, whoa, you know, I know you got to, I don't know what you do to get yourself back into your, into your good framework, but I know you hear some things from some folks that you, that, that, that make you want to, uh, you know, we say in, in the Christian tradition, lay hands. <laughs> well, and, and you know that um, Jesus Christ uh, was a person who walked this earth mm -hmm. and did so in a way to set an example for us to be able right. to live. And there's so many examples of, of his uh, forbearance of those who uh, would betray him, those who uh, would um, obstruct uh, the people who uh, he sought to uh, bring relief and happiness to. Uh, he, he fought uh, those folks. He, he go in kicking over the table <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and, and, and uh, the money changes and, uh, you know, 
and in the spirit of what is right for the people. That's right. That's right. When he, uh, you never saw him uh, raise his hand and uh, you never saw him talking about folk and gossiping. And, uh, you know, he respected even uh, those adversaries and he had mercy for them and asked for mercy for them. And so this is the kind of uh, spirit that I think it's difficult to maintain it. It's difficult to get to that point, really, not much less to maintain it. And, mm. and so that is what I've seen you do, Reverend. Yeah, well, you have to. You know, you, you, you have to. And you, you, that, that story you bring up about Jesus going into the temple is actually one of the, the ones that I love. Because as, as Jesus, as a, as a black Palestinian Jew, um, you know, he was in a position when he went in there he saw folks doing wrong. You're right. And he turned over those those money tables. But, you know, it's, the story goes on, and it says then, after he cleared the temple of those who were doing wrong, then those who were poor, then those who were afflicted came into the temple and were healed. And so sometimes, you know, we have to, we, we got to clear out folks who are in the way of progress. We get to clear out folks who are not doing right by our people. And and so I'm so glad you brought that up. And, and, and that's you're right. That's exactly how we have to be. And we have to have, you know, and I think that what you showed earlier in with your arrest, and I know for me, we believe in a nonviolent, you know, way of, of, of action. That's the only way that you can really uh, accomplish. Violence doesn't accomplish anything. So, you know, I appreciate you for that perspective. You know, on this show, Congressman, you know, we, we think a lot about liberation. Um, tell us, do you identify one as a Pan-Africanist and what makes that significant? And then, you know, with your worldview, how are you focused on the intersection of issues going on? Well, I tell you, I, I have traveled the world. I've had the privilege of, uh, as a congressman to be able to travel the world. And I tell you, uh, Reverend Yearwood, one of my observations is that wherever I go, I don't care which which uh, continent it is. Uh, it seems to me uh, I've observed that uh, dark skinned people always end up at the bottom of the barrel on the mm. no man on the totem pole. Are always uh, the ones um, who are oppressed or deprived, and so. This means that um, across the world, there's a mindset that is racist in its, uh, in its origin. And uh, that racism has to be um, fought against. And so when people come together, realizing that they uh, have uh, similar interests and, uh, and uh, a common, uh, experience, then they can work to um, advance as a group. And uh, so that's what Pan-Africanism is all about. It's about the African diaspora coming together, regardless of where you are, what continent or what country, what city or state you may be in, and recognize uh, the commonality that we share, and it is our skin color. And um, 
And with that knowledge uh, and with an understanding of history, mm. um, we can have the kind of um, uplift, the kind of um, uh, understanding of who we are first so that uh, we can then uh, oppose those forces that would keep us down because of our color, having so much pride in who we are as a people and what we have accomplished. I mean, we as a people have been stripped of our connection to our motherland, and we don't know who our uh, ancestors were and what their accomplishments were and uh, how they, uh, uh, what they accomplished. And so we uh, being deprived of that history, uh, knowing only thing, only, knowing only uh, several generations back in terms of who we are in this country, um, you know, and looking at our, what we have accomplished and even that being hidden from us and uh, even that being uh, distorted, what we know, uh, we are severely psychologically traumatized as a people. And so for us as African-Americans to uh, relate back to even Jamaican-Americans uh, or to uh, you know our brothers and sisters uh, on the continent of Africa, for us to be connected and to uh, to learn of the uh, of the accomplishments and the uh, trials and tribulations of our people and what we have overcome and what we built, um, to have that understanding uh, infuses us with a sense of pride and uh, gives us the kind of um, background upon which we can extend on the accomplishments of our people, as opposed to not knowing anything about our heritage and who we are. And the only thing we know is, is these negative images that have been implanted in us from day one, since we were born, mm. so, you know, we're psychologically afflicted. Certainly we start turning on each other and uh, we start trying to, uh, hurt and kill each other. We don't even have self-respect. And so, uh, you know, there's so much that we can do uh, to connect ourselves with, with, uh, with our history and our legacy and those kinds of things. Um, they build uh, greater self-awareness and uh, greater self-respect how can you respect someone else if you don't even respect yourself? Mm. And so, you know, these are the things that uh, the uh, Pan-African movement can, uh, can enable us to do. Now having, uh, now, you know, being, we're, we're, but we as a people are still on this vessel in the universe with, with others. And we have to uh, all advance together, uh, but certainly as a group of people with a similar, with similarities and with a common uh, uh, experience and with, um, with a need to change things 
to advance ourselves into a state of equality, it's important that we do connect and um, from, a, from all over the world and uh, come together to advance our cause. Congressman, you know, I, I, I thank you for that response. But let me just take it, you know, we on this show, we, we keep it 100. So let me, let me, let me add this to this, this framework. Um, you know, you are a member of the United States Congress. You are a congressman. I was once a officer in the United States Air Force. We both have taken pledges to serve this country um, in this process. But we are both black men. If, if you and I decide to go out there and shoot some basketball, put on some hoodies, and we go out there and we shoot some basketball down there in, 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 in Atlanta, and then all of a sudden somebody comes up to us, and we don't have enough time to recite or tell our credentials, you and me can be killed in this country. So the question is, really, with you and your position, why is this so, I'm talking about this liberation, why is it so hard for us to be equal? And then also, why are we fighting so hard to be equal in a system that doesn't want us to be equal in the first place? Why are we begging for voting rights? Why are we begging this for, not, not, not Black Lives Matter more, but this matter? Why are we begging to survive when we should be liberated from that, that kind of toxic environment? That's what these folks are saying to us. So what's your thoughts on that, that you and I, who served this country, could be killed because of this color of our skin? Well, the only thing I can, I can uh, account for it, uh, Reverend Yearwood, is, is at one point we were on top. I'm privileged and honored to have been elected to be a member of Congress, one of 435 members, and it takes 218 of us to get anything done, uh, to pass a, a piece of legislation. We gotta have 218 votes. And so here we are in, um, in America, in Congress, I as a Democrat, along with uh, 218, 21 other Democrats. We have a, a four vote majority. And so to, to corral uh, enough votes to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would, uh, which would be an important um, step in uh, creating conditions, making it better for, for black folks in their relationships with police officers in this country. We passed it in the House of Representatives. Now it's in the Senate, which has a 50-50 split with, a, with one vote coming from the vice president to break a tie if there should be a tie. So uh, pretty much, Democrats are in control of the Senate, uh, but only by one vote. But then when you have folks like um, uh, you, have, you have, I'm not going to call any names, you know the names, and uh, folks that we're going to have to work with, um, 
to advance the cause. They may not see things exactly the way that we see it. And so that's why we don't have George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed in the Senate uh, because we simply don't have, well, I got to go back to the filibuster rule in the Senate now because the House, we operate strictly by majority rule. So we were able to use our then five vote majority uh, to uh, pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, but the Senate has this rule called the filibuster, a procedural rule. And it requires that for any matter to come to the floor of the Senate for up up or down vote by majority rule, 60 folks have to vote in order to put it on the floor. So that's called the filibuster rule. And uh, so when you only have 50 votes in the House and you don't have a single vote, much less 10 votes in the uh, Senate by the Republicans to advance some legislation, then you can't get anything done. It just sits there stalled. And so that's where we are with a piece of legislation that would address um, relations between blacks and police officers across this country. Uh, We can't get it across the finish line unless we do filibuster reform. And guess what? In order to change the rules of the Senate to eliminate the filibuster, all it takes is a majority vote. And so if you've got 50 votes with a a tiebreaker being the vice president, if you want to change the rules, you can change the rules. So we got a couple of people in the Senate that don't want to change the rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just that uh, hangs up progress in this country. And uh, when you look at when you look at it over the last decade, I mean, Barack Obama had to work with a House and a Senate controlled by uh, Republicans. And so he couldn't get anything done on his watch. And now we got a we've got House and Senate under Democratic control and with a uh, Democratic president. But we're still, because of the process, stuck. And so uh, we just have to keep fighting with good legislation to try to change the conditions under which we uh, we live, Reverend Yearwood. And it's just, uh, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a long process. Got to keep chipping away until you make it happen. No, I'm with you on that. Let me, let me go back to something here, right here. I want to, because we're talking about trauma and pain and folks doing stuff. You hosted an event um, for the CBC 100th commemoration event of the Tulsa massacre. Um, what's next in that regard? And, 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 and what have we learned from that in that process? And where do we go from there? Yeah, we learned that 100 years after Tulsa, uh, 1921, a prosperous Black enclave, people minding their own business, working hard, trading with each other, uh, developing culturally, and 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 overnight, our enclave, our home, Greenwood, a section of Tulsa, burned to the ground. The entire community displaced, put in internment camps, Mm. and had to have white folks to come and sign you out before you could get out. 
And then from there, you got to make your way back to uh, self-sufficiency, um, a hard road that we're still traveling on. And um, nobody was held accountable. We went through the courts trying to get relief from the wrongdoers, but got thrown out of court on the false premise that you are the one that started the riot. You were the ones that were rioting and we had to come in and quell the riot and your joint got burned down as a result. So it was all your fault. And so that's what we were left with uh, since 1921. Fast forward to, to 60 years later, 1961 or 40 years later, 1961, uh, John Lewis riding on buses throughout the South, trying to break the, um, uh, the uh, on the freedom rise, trying to break, uh, keeping black folks from being on buses and having to sit in the back of the bus and uh, interstate commerce, breaking the back of, uh, of segregation in interstate commerce. 40 years after Greenwood, we still didn't have a right to ride a bus. And we got nothing out of Greenwood but pain and grief. And still, 40 years later, working to get a, be able to ride in interstate commerce. And then, fast forward 60 years later, 2021, 100 years after Tulsa, Greenwood, we got burned out. And we're still fighting for the right to vote in this country. And still, after having been promised 40 acres and a mule after the Civil War, which we never got, we've been winging it for ourselves. So what Tulsa and the 100-year commemoration meant to me was a, a strong urge to pass H.R. 40. Reparation. Um, H.R. 40 simply calls for a study to determine what kind of reparations or what form of reparations are due to these people who worked without pay, were traumatized, were lynched, were terrorized, and treated as less than human before the end of slavery and thereafter mm. throughout Jim Crow, same thing. And, uh, and today we get to the point where you say that we should not be concerned about our history and what happened, get over it and just move on today. When we look at our system, which has us perpetually behind, has us as the low man on the totem pole, has us uh, lacking in every indicia of uh, well-being from, from economics to housing to education to healthcare, all indicia, uh, we are disproportionately uh, negatively impacted and behind the curve. So question is, how do we bring this group of people into an equity position. And uh, because, you know, you just can't leave them there and, and expect that they are going to 
develop equity from behind the cue ball, behind the uh, goal line, uh, behind the finish line, I mean, behind the start line where you are starting at uh, way advanced than us and we have to run the same race and uh, we got to pick up all that ground that you have on us. No, you, there's something that is owed. And so Tulsa was an example of a community that was torn up, that had not been compensated for the loss that it and its residents uh, sustained. And, uh, and it brings to uh, mind the greater picture of we as a people and what we've been through in this country and how we've been deprived and, and the fact that we need to gain equity in this country. And so reparation, HR 40 is something that needs to pass. Um, that's, uh, uh, we need to have that discussion and uh, that discussion needs to be met with some concrete action. That's what Tulsa uh, meant to me. And to a lesser extent, the Tulsa Greenwood Massacre Claims Accountability Act is a piece of legislation that I filed. It had originally been filed just like HR 40 was the brainchild of uh, Representative John Conyers. So was the Greenwood uh, Tulsa Claims Massacre Claims Accountability Act. And uh, so I was happy to be able to bring that back this year and present it in Congress. It would simply open the courts for the survivors. There are three of them. One is 107 years old, one is 106, and the other is wow. 100 years old. It would open the courthouse doors to them and all of the descendants of those who lost their lives or property in the Tulsa Greenwood massacre open the courthouse doors for them to be able to come in and assert their claims and to to get some kind of compensation for their loss. Mm. You know, uh, one this time always goes so fast and it's just always just a, just a great conversation. I just really got two more, two more questions. I want to hit on climate because we've been hitting on a lot of some good stuff. Cause we want to, we want a healthy democracy. We want a healthy planet. And, uh, so, um, the, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the UN, latest report came out. And in it, we are warned that we are getting to the point of no return and with serious consequences for people of color globally. Tell us what you're doing to spread the word in our community and, and really what is and, and why climate change is important as an issue for you. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, climate change results from the emission of fossil fuels into the atmosphere, which deplete the ozone layer, which then allows for the sun's rays to come through unfiltered. And uh, so uh, climate change results with uh, extreme weather events, heating, as well as uh, uh, chilling uh, the water, the air quality is impacted. We tend to live in the communities that are closest to the drivers of uh, air pollution. And that air pollution is uh, contributing to, I mean, that is the contributor to the climate change. And so, uh, and as a result of our nearness and proximity to the drivers of uh, 
of climate change, uh, we suffer disproportionate health impacts. And we also live in areas that are, uh, are prone to flooding uh, because as, as, the, um, as the polar ice caps melt, the sea level rises. And we tend to live on the um, lower, uh, or, or we tend to live where, we tend to live in areas that are um, uh, in uh, that are uh, have a lower, uh, you, you know. In other words, we live in low-lying areas. Most definitely, areas are more susceptible to getting flooded. So, in addition to our air quality, you know, we're actually going to be forced to leave the the homes that we live in. A lot of us, and and we'll be displaced. And black people across the world, not just here in America, but across the world, uh, uh, being displaced because of the melting of the polar ice caps. And so um, our air quality and where we live, and then the heat that, uh, that comes with all of this, uh, the record heat, the fires. And uh, so the fires, the flooding, the uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, all of these things um, impact those who are least positioned right. uh, to, um, to withstand and overcome. And so we as a people are, are uh, disproportionately negatively impacted once again uh, by this um, phenomenon uh, called uh, climate change. It's real and it's man-made. And so we all should be concerned about it, even though we're not manning the controls of the drivers. Uh, but there's a lot that we can do to, uh, we just need to be aware of that fact because bottom line on that ship that we are all on that's floating on the sea of the universe, uh, the ship is burning. Mm. And so when the ship is burning, everybody is called upon to get some water and help put out the fire. And so everything that we can do uh, to, uh, to do that. So things that our government can do is like encourage folks to get away from uh, the uh, combustible uh, engine, uh, move towards uh, a cleaner, more electric vehicle uh, uh, way of life. So we do that in terms of transit, trains, and we do that in terms of the, uh, uh, in getting away from this internal combustion engine with our cars. We can all start either using transit and, or we can uh, go, we can buy cars that uh, use, that operate on electric batteries as opposed to in the internal uh, combustion engine. And, uh, but we got to have places around the country where people can stop and get their vehicles recharged, just like gas stations, you need right. recharging stations. And so you've got, so government is the um, mechanism through which we can inspire that kind of investment by the private sector. And government has to start it. And so I'm happy to be a part of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee under the leadership of Peter DeFazio, which is moving our nation towards a uh, clean energy future. 
And uh, it's important, not just for black people, but for all mankind. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I, I, I can't let you go without, you know, you are in Atlanta. And, you know, in your district, you have the Tupac Shakur Center of Arts is, is there. And, and, and so you got all that good stuff. And it's home of hip-hop now. Atlanta is hip-hop. So I, I got I to gotta ask you some hip-hop questions before you go now, here, Congressman. So, all right now. So if you get into your car uh, and you got either Outkast or the Migos for a choice, who, who are you going to play? Gosh, you know, I'm I'm an old school guy, but I can appreciate the new stuff, too. Uh, I, I'm still getting adjusted to uh, Migos and, and uh, the new school guys. But, uh, you know, Outkast and, and that generation um, and the generation before that, uh, you know, I mean, we just had some great uh, artists and some great music uh, coming out. I'm not going to cast aspersions on uh on the music that I'm hearing now, because the older, as you get older, uh, you, you have a, you have less appreciation for what's going on right now, and you tend to cling to uh, to what you were listening to back in your day. Okay, all right. Outcast got that's now we got that's good. That's a good one. All right. So n- next question, and I, and I know I, I now I, I'm not sure if you're a vegan or a vegetarian. I'm not sure. No, I, I I I had a uh, I put a nice juicy steak. Okay, you down here. Yeah, you from down south, so you from down south. You from Georgia, so <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. So if somebody asks you for the best place to go to go get chicken and waffles in, in Atlanta, where, where are you gonna go tell them to go? <laughs> well, if they want some fried chicken, I'm gonna tell them to go to Belinda's down in uh, Stonecrest, <laughs> uh, Stonecrest Mall. Uh, great. Uh, Fried chicken and vegetables and everything, soul food. I don't. I think she might do uh, waffles. You know, chicken and waffles on uh, Sunday during the brunch that she just started out there. But uh, <laughs> you know, other that 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 out. That'll be the yeah. That that that, 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 that yeah. I you know I want to start none won't beat none. So y'all heard it. Y'all heard that hit. All right. Next question. I just got two more for you. So um, if you got to choose to go to a homecoming. To a what? To a homecoming. To one of the homecoming games. Uh, uh, you got a few out there for the black black schools. Uh, which one are you going to? Uh, probably. Or, or, who, or, or who has the best homecoming? That's probably the better question. All right, probably TSU, Tennessee State University. Well, you got to stay at home. We in Georgia. No, we're not going out the state now. We got to go with the homecoming Clark Atlanta University all the way. It is. Question about that. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so the, yeah, clock. I'm with you on the clock, Atlanta. Uh, even though back in the day, Morris Brown had a good homecoming. Morris Brown used to have a yeah, Mo Brown. I'm glad to see Mo Brown back. Yeah, we glad to see that too. too. You know, yeah, we, we needed that. Our people needed that. <laughs> All right, uh, last one here, and and you can choose to answer or not answer. <laughs> uh, back in your day. But when you was when you was a younger man, did you ever pass through Freaknik? <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell you, I was um, yeah, Freaknik. The first Freaknik around 1993 was right right up the street uh, at Exchange Park, mm. and I remember it uh, vividly. Although I was uh, older guy that I was too old for Freaknik then, and um, and I remember how it. Uh, 
developed, and I used to like to observe it from the outside, you know, uh, not participating in it. I thought it was uh, it was great, but it did start to get out of hand. And, yeah, it got, uh, got a little hand in the end. Yeah. It had to be uh, restrained yeah. and, and yeah. ultimately killed. But, uh, you know, for, for Atlanta, that was like, um, I mean, Atlanta is the hip hop capital of the world. And uh, that was at the very beginning, you know, of, of that. You know, we had hip hop New York and California, but then the Dirty South started coming up. And, um, and hip hop was a, a, a big uh, uh, example of what was here in the South. And uh, from there, you know, things, things, things move forward. It's a, it's an industry now. And um, I mean, lifestyle, people come here and talking about Migos. Uh, I mean, that whole Southern, that, I mean, that whole style of rap uh, is, is like Southern, Southern originated. And uh, so we leave, everybody's doing it now, you know, so that, yeah. We we uh, we are a mecca. Yeah, no, it is. Atlanta is a mecca, and we we appreciate Atlanta being where it is now for hip hop, and we appreciate you for all that you've done in Congress, um, in your work that you have. And and uh, is anything I'm, I'll make sure this because anything else you want to make sure and tell the people. I don't make sure to give that this last opportunity. The kind of anything you want to the hip hop caucus is a big driver of what's going on in Washington, D.C., in politics, as well as uh, in protecting, preserving, and enhancing uh, our unique cultural contribution and making sure that our young people are able to uh, freely uh, engage in the culture and uh, thrive in that culture. So I want to thank you, Reverend Yearwood, for your years of service to the community and uh, your organization, the Hip Hop Caucus, leading the way, and I'm here to serve. And I look forward to continuing to work with you to make things great for, for our people and for the, uh, for the people of this world. Uh, Congressman Hank Johnson, if folks want to get in contact with you, like, or your staff or in the district or in D.C., how, how can they do that? Well, they can hit me up at, at rep. Hank Johnson at Rep Hank Johnson, or they can go to my website, hankjohnson.house.gov. And uh, for those who want to follow our movement, they can sign up for my email list at hankforcongress.com. And that's our guest today. He is U.S. Representative Hank Johnson for Georgia's 4th Congressional District. And I am Rev Year with your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you so much, Congressman. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.